Hey there, it's Phil Harwood. Just want to take a quick minute before we begin today's podcast episode and talk to you about our live and in-person events. We had three events scheduled for 2021. We've already had two of them. Our Inner Circle, sponsored by VentTrack event, was very well attended and was a great event. And uh, just recently, we had our Forum for Sales event, sponsored by SnowX, sold out. Uh, We had a great event there as well. We have one more event coming up. It's called Grounds in Institutional Management. It's really focused on site um, issues, operations, engineering, equipment, everything having to do with with running a snow event and planning for events. This is going to be September 8th and 9th at Milton Cat in Milford, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So we hope to see you there. Registration is open right now at snowfightersinstitute.com. Welcome to the Snowfighters Institute podcast where we hear directly from some of the most interesting people in the professional snow and ice management industry to learn about their successes, to hear about the challenges they faced along the way, and to have their perspective on critical issues facing our industry today. I'm your host, Phil Harwood. Before I introduce today's special guest, I'd like to invite you to follow our social media feeds And check out our upcoming events at snowfightersinstitute.com. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome. My name is Phil Harwood, and I'm joined today by our special guest, Scott Zorno from High Country Spray Systems based in Conifer, Colorado. Uh, Scott is a veteran of the snow and ice management industry with over four decades of hands-on experience in snow plowing, de-icing, and really has become one of the most recognized experts in liquid de-icing solutions in North America, if not around the world. So, Scott, we're very pleased to have you. Welcome, sir. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me, Phil. It's uh, it's always good to see you. Likewise. Well, I want to go, I want to start at the beginning. Okay, how about that? Let's start, let's go back to the very beginning of your career, and um, always it's always interesting to hear how people got in into the industry. So, um, take us back to the very beginning of your career in the snow industry. How did you get started? Well, it started uh, my senior year in college. Uh, the summer before my senior year, I got really interested in uh, uh, off roading and four wheeling. And I figured out that uh, one of the ways that I could have a four-wheel drive truck was to start snow plowing. Well, this was Durango, Colorado, and that's a ski town and a uh, small college town. And so we were able to uh, open a snow plowing business uh, with a real goal of just owning a, a truck that we could go four-wheeling and camping with. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I remember starting at... Uh, $18 an hour for a uh, truck hour was the rate we were charging that first year. And we did a mix of uh, residential and commercial uh, in the town of Durango and just outside of the town of Durango. 
And uh, that's not a real heavy snow market, but uh, I, I learned a lot of things very, very quickly. Where is that in relationship to Denver? At the far southwest corner of the state. Okay. So um, they've been in a drought lately, but normally there's a pretty strong uh, snow. It's near Purgatory Ski Area, if everybody's heard of Purgatory. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a, a rough place for snow removal. What What does a typical winter look like there, if there ever is a typical? Like, what are, what are the extremes you've seen in that area? Well, <clears throat> um. Down there, it wasn't uh, it wasn't extreme. There was about 60, 70 inches a year. And uh, the market that we've been in for the last uh, uh, 29 years has been uh, quite a bit different. It's much stronger market. We're uh, in Conifer and Bailey, Colorado. We're sitting at somewhere around 100, 120 inches of snow a year uh, in the process of 20 or 22 events a year average so very very strong uh season and then what would a heavy uh, winter go up some... to <clears throat> well the heaviest one on record was 2003 for us and that was uh a killer in all kinds of ways we actually wound up with uh somewhere around 62 inches on the flat out of one storm in three days we had snowfall rates of over five inches an hour Oh, man. And it was just unprecedented anywhere in Colorado. The lowest barometric pressure ever recorded in Colorado was recorded right over us in the middle of that storm. Wow. Yeah, that's a crazy storm. Uh, that that would be a, that's a whole nother podcast to, to walk us through how you attack <laughs> yeah, that storm. <laughs> yeah, it, it simply put, all we did is just sit back and conduct loaders. You couldn't move it with a truck. And uh, we, we had some, uh, we actually had a young fella uh, sitting around with a four-wheel drive pickup and a tow strap to pull each one of our plow trucks out as we got stuck. And at one point, we had four trucks stuck at one time. Make a, make a row, get pulled out, start over. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And so in 2003, what, how many inches do you, do you recall? Uh, it was a total of 350 inches. Man, okay. So, so average 100, 120, but up to 300 plus. What about yeah. on the downside? I mean, can you see a winter where there's like nothing or 10 inches or 20? Well, or... Yeah, well, the lowest uh, winter that I remember um, was about 30 inches. And okay. uh, when you're a quarter of statistical average, that uh, that makes for a very rough winter, uh, especially when you're uh, on a, a per push basis, not a seasonal contract. So 30 inches up to 300. That's, that's fun to plan for. Is it a, is it a dry snow? Is it a wet snow over there or what? Um, normally it's pretty dry and fluffy because we're not that far away from the ski areas, but that one really bad storm had the highest moisture content of any snow ever recorded in Colorado as well. And so it was incredibly heavy. I mean, it was like seven inches of snow per inch of moisture. And so we got tremendous amounts of moisture in that one. But traditionally, we're about an inch of, inch of moisture to about 10 to 12 inches, maybe even 14 inches of snow in the middle of the dead winter. Yeah. 
Well, I definitely want to talk to you about high country and liquids. That's the hot topic for, you know, everyone right now in the industry, it seems like. Um, so we want to spend some time there. But I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your contracting business. So tell us about it. What You said you had a mix of different types of properties, but like how big was it? What was the range? Did you work with subcontractors? What Maybe some of just the uh, highlights of your contracting oh. career. Uh, we, uh, we, we basically, I, I started down in Durango in college, then worked as a subcontractor um, in the Denver area for a while after college, and then um, worked up in Breckenridge, just another ski town for a while uh, as uh, just a, a single truck. And then <clears throat> as we got started and got, Carrie and I got married and uh, we started uh, doing the family thing, we uh, uh, got a second truck and then uh, brought the kids as they got old enough. We brought the kids in as uh, our shoveling crew and stayed pretty small. And then I finally joined SIMA and learned a little bit more about subcontracting and how to do it right. And that's when we took a good, healthy growth spurt. And at one time we had just about 50% market share in our, uh, our mountain market of the commercial property. And so we were, we had a, a good uh, going business and um, it was, it was uh, not without its difficulties because uh, in the mountains, uh, six miles away can make a dramatic difference as to how much snow accumulates. And so we had um, a lot of engineering that went into it and we learned how to build a blizzard plane uh, right after that uh, 2003 horrible blizzard. And uh, once again, thank you, Saima, for a lot of learning on that count. And <clears throat> we uh, tried to be uh, specialized and, and be a little bit more proactive and a little more dependable than the typical company was back. And this would have been the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the reason for the move from Durango to Denver and then Conifer? Was that family related or was that a strategic decision based on market conditions or what was that? It was family because uh, I graduated from college and uh, uh, left Durango. I grew up in the south end of Denver. And so we moved back into Denver and then um, got married shortly after I moved back. And then I found myself unemployed for a while, uh, which happens uh, when you're fresh out of college. And so I went back to, uh, to Breckenridge and uh, had a four-wheel drive shop for a little while, did a lot of wrench spinning and knuckle busting and a, a lot of plowing of snow. And that's where I really, I guess, grew as a contractor to the point where I could actually manage substantial amounts of snow was uh, working in the Breckenridge and Frisco area. Uh, plowing. You mentioned um, your wife, Carrie. Um, you've been married uh, for how long? 45 years, nice. uh, a couple of weeks ago. Congrats. Um, has she been involved in the business? She has been uh, involved in the business uh, a fair amount, not too much in the very beginning, but then as uh, we became a more, we moved to the mountains and, and got more of a family oriented business. Uh, we put her in a second truck, and so she's done her uh, a lot more than her normal share of time behind the wheel, because each one of us would take one or two kids, and uh, we'd go plowing, and then the kids would hop out and do the shoveling, 
and uh, it, it was a great way to uh, to work together as a family. Uh, snow days meant a whole lot different than most people's idea of a snow day. Oh yeah, well you know there's a lot of people in the industry that um, husband and wife are both involved, and and sometimes that's a really great thing, and sometimes it's it's a challenging thing. And you have um, years of experience on some of us. So um, what kind of, um, you know, boundaries did you guys have to set, you know, as far as separating business from work? Or did you never really think about that? Or how how did you successfully get through all those years where you were both involved? Interesting thought, because we, we never really separated it. It's like um, the applying business was such a uh, a natural part of our lives. It integrated. And I remember um, plowing in Denver. We had a, a huge church that we plowed, and that was kind of our one contract. And I remember having my son at the age of like seven or eight months uh, in, a, in a car seat in the front seat of the truck when I'm plowing. <laughs> Probably not OSHA approved. <laughs> uh, no, no, but he was in a car seat. He was seat belted in. And so we figured I can't go too far wrong. Oh, that's and, better uh, than a case of beer. by the grace of God, never had any issues. <laughs> yeah. Now, what did you do in the summertime during all those years? Well, it, that's uh, another kind of funny story is I was actually living in the corporate world all this time. And all this was on the side of a corporate job in the aerospace world. And um, it, I was very privileged in the fact that when the weather was bad, I could cut out and step away from my corporate job. I just had to make up the time that I was gone. Nice. And uh, for years and years, my bosses were very uh, agreeable to that because they knew that uh, if it was snowing enough for me to work, it was snowing enough that a lot of the other staff wasn't going to be able to come in anyway. So it didn't, uh, it didn't handicap the uh, specific operations that I was dealing with. And it was a, a great way we were able to have the um, corporate level uh, medical insurance for the kids. And we'll talk more about that later. But um, we, we could, I could still have this entrepreneurial spirit and living in the mountains and a backcountry commute down into the corporate world. Hmm. So you have a corporate uh, full-time job. <laughs> you have a snow plowing contracting business. Uh, then you started a supply business and then you also have a really interesting other side hustle. Uh, tell us about that. Okay. The, the other, the interesting side hustle these days is I've been working in uh, wildfire management in the summertime. Um, when we lived in the mountains, I got started into uh, search and rescue and my son kind of dragged me into that. That was kind of fun. And we did it uh, largely together. And I actually became a vice president of the team and worked that for almost 10 years. Then I figured out that tromping through the woods uh, in the middle of the night chasing a search dog was a younger man's sport. And I had this incident command training uh, in conjunction with search and rescue. And so I thought, well, it'd be fun to kind of find another way to get involved in that. And lo and behold, there was a, uh, a team in Jefferson County, the next county over from us that had an incident management team and, and they specialized in wildland fires. And so I wound up working, uh, getting engaged with them, working with them. And I carry 
three different national credentials right now for in the uh, wildland fire management area, a logistics section chief, um, facilities unit leader, and what we call base camp manager. I take care of the uh, camp that the firefighters sleep in. Uh, fundamentally, I'm king of the porta potties. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you're really on call, right? Um, yeah. Or, or do, they, oh, or do you, is it an optional thing? You can jump in when you have availability. What I can do is I, I I'm on a national list and I can change my availability on that national list. And I also will change that availability availability with the team. Like when we go on a family vacation, I'll make myself unavailable for 10 days or two weeks. And that generally works out pretty well. And then how long will a stint be if you get called out? Are you there for a couple of days? Are you there for a few weeks? Uh, it's normally we come prepared to stay for two weeks with sometimes an option of a third week. Uh, this last summer was uh, just absolutely brutal for fires in Colorado. And uh, I logged 38 days working fires. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for doing that. Um, you know, that's I mean, so important and those, those fire, I mean, sitting over here in Michigan where, you know, we, it's just nothing we deal with on a regular basis. Can't imagine having, you know, those threats, um, that we see on the news in Colorado and, and, in California and other places. So thank you so much for what you do there. That's huge. I do want to talk about high country. So how, tell well. us about, tell us about high country spray systems. When did you start that company and, how did you make that transition from a contractor to supplier and kind of walk us through, let's just start out. What is high country? What do you do? Well, it, it, it started with, um, I got invited to teach at a SIMA symposium on the use of liquids at the contractor level. And I had, uh, at that point had about six or seven years of experience. I had a lot of good stories and some pretty good experience to share but invariably I get done with one of the talks and somebody would say, well, what would I use for equipment? And I could say, well, this brand had this strong points, but it had this weak point. And we went back and forth. And <clears throat> when it came time to leave the corporate world, one of the thoughts that uh, occurred to me was, I've always known there was a market for spray systems. Let's take what I have been using and let's make it because we know it works and uh, develop a, uh, a series of sprayers off of what I had actually been using. And so we, uh, in uh, 2012, we founded a company. Uh, we have a, a sole source manufacturer, a good friend of mine makes tree sprayers in the summertime, but he loves making uh, ice sprayers in the wintertime. And so it was a, a match made in heaven. We could, we could get the, the, the kind of the hands-on quality because uh, everything is, is still approved by me, but yet I didn't have to go hire and build the whole manufacturing team. Um, and it's been a great experience. Uh, uh, these guys at uh, ProTree and Turf have been uh, super to build what I want the way I want it. And then what we've done is we've even tweaked it a little bit and uh, spent a lot of time testing and uh, we've kind of adopted the new tagline forged in the field and it's all based on what's now 21 years of experience with 
uh, liquid de-icers. Uh, we were one of the earliest to adopt liquids as a contractor and one of the earliest people to start teaching about liquids. And now we're one of the, uh, I'd like to think foundational companies for uh, getting the technique and the, the whole um, uh, technology into the contractor world. Yeah, it's a complicated world, and a, and a lot of people are challenged by it. Um, and and we'll get to that in a second here, because um, I want to I want to hear your um, thoughts about just some of the struggles that people have with liquids. Um, but what what really sets your company apart? Um, there's other people that make spray systems and equipment. What else do you offer, and what's unique about High Country? Well. What we do is we kind of take the uh, low frills, no frills approach. We want things to be simple, to, to be dependable, and to be easily repairable. A lot of times you get into uh, GPS um, managed systems and programming them can be a nightmare. You introduce both electronic and um, mechanical points of failure. And we just said, no, we want to do straight up, simple um, and productive. We want people to be productive as soon as they, uh, in, in essence, they put the, the rig on their truck and we want them to be productive and to be making money right away and not have to sweat the learning curve. It's enough of a learning curve to learn to use liquids properly without having to learn how to program fancy electronics. Yeah, And so we, we like that. We also try to be a, a vendor of a complete system. Um, our systems are self-filling. A lot of them on the market are not. And so it makes it very easy to just back up to a storage tank and hook up a hose and start the motor and fill your truck and then shut it down, uh, close the valves, and away you go. And that kind of versatility, that kind of simplicity is what we're um, becoming very famous for. Uh, we also, uh, we've had many discussions about uh, uh, spray nozzles. It's been, I have gone round and round with some of the real authorities in the, uh, in the industry. And fortunately, there's a couple of them that are coming around to my way of thinking about uh, spray nozzles when you're doing a pre-treat, uh, being able to do it with a fan, but can get the even coverage. But what we do is we use a fan that creates big drops and there's a natural pro, uh, propensity to atomize, uh, to turn the spray into mist. And these nozzles reduce that to almost nothing. So even in a, a, a strong breeze, a 15 mile an hour breeze, the uh, liquid comes out of the nozzle and goes where it's pointed. And that has been a, a real um, selling point for us. It's been a real production point for us in the fact that uh, we know what's going on the ground and it's genuinely going on the ground, not down the block in a mist. Hmm. Yeah. No, super important. And people really need a complete system. They don't, you know, just, just buying a piece of the system. I, I think that's where people struggle is, is they don't have maybe a good source to really help them design the entire system from storage to even where they're procuring understanding, you know, where to get, whether they're making their own, you know, brine solutions or mixing their own solutions or buying them or whatever it is, right? The whole, but right. the storage yeah. and the filling and the transportation and, and then obviously the, the application. 
the whole the whole system needs to work together and there's so many different parts so i love the i love the concept of keep it simple <laughs> reduce the error points right yeah right um just just um i want to talk more about liquids but i'm also curious about just the transition from going from a contractor to a supplier because Lots of other folks have done it, and some have done it successfully, and some haven't. And there's there's a little bit of a challenge there because you're, you know, you're probably initially trying to sell to your your uh, subcontractor base or to even to your competitors, and that can be a challenge having kind of both feet in there. So what 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 did you learn during that whole transition? What advice do you have for someone who's maybe considering going down that path? That whole that whole transition was. Um, probably on a technical side, it looked pretty simple because what we did is we said, we're going to keep the contracting business going for a while. And then we'll, uh, we'll start building the, the manufacturing side, the, the sales side. And that was going fairly well, but I was kind of felt like I had one foot in an ice rink and one foot in a banana peel and I was doing the splits. <laughs> and so, um, we finally sold the contracting company in uh, 2017 and uh, focused exclusively on, uh, on sprayers. But we've also wound up using some of my contractor friends as test beds so that we've been able to keep um, this, this forged in the field, hands-on testing methodology that we started with, then we've been able to keep that alive because all of our equipment is, in fact, uh, tested pretty robustly uh, before we actually uh, turn it loose uh, as a production item. And that transition, one of the hardest things was uh, uh, thinking about SIMA membership to go from a SIMA membership as a, uh, a contractor from many, many years to now uh, a, a, a supplier and a vendor um, that took a little bit of, of working through and um, understanding that in an organization like SIMA, the, the, the change, uh, it was good, but it, we had to be kind of careful about how we did it and, and to when we're like continuing to teach, not turning it into sales spiel, but actually still teaching the, the material. Yeah, it's a different world being a supplier, you know, making decisions about sponsorships and advertising, and it's a different perspective. Um, so I want to talk about this liquids a little bit more, um, because people are really challenged um, by liquids. You know, it seems like nobody has it figured out 100%, and and sometimes that, to me that's a little bit of a head-scratcher. It doesn't seem that complicated, but for some reason it is, so... Talk to us about some of the reasons people are struggling with liquids. I think one of the things that they're struggling with <clears throat> is that they go into it with um, invalid assumptions and invalid expectations. They assume that they're going to buy this cool piece of equipment, they're going to buy this liquid, and they're going to um, make it all work, just get the, get the juice on the ground, so to speak. And you can do that, but your results are probably going to be somewhat limited and the, the, the quality is not going to be there. If you go into it with an idea that this is going to be a, a, a uh, engineered trial and error and that you go in there with some uh, training 
and some uh, input onto how to do it, you stand a whole lot better chance. And, and uh, just uh, one quick thing is that the, the ability to get training and to get uh, input on how to do liquids has grown by leaps and bounds over the last few years. I mean, it started go back, go back in 14, 15, 16, uh, when I was teaching a lot at SIMA, there were very few, it was basically a fellow by the name of Dale Keep and I, that were the only ones that were talking about liquids and, and actually teaching about it. And then um, there've been other people come along, but the big thing that's happened is, is that uh, different organizations have started to do more to promote it. Uh, Snow Business Magazine has done a great job of promoting and teaching about liquids in the magazine. Uh, Snow Magazine has done some, and uh, there's been uh, Snow Fighters International has done uh, trainings. Uh, I actually taught for Snow Fighters up at the uh, uh, Alaskan Snow Conference in Anchorage uh, a couple times now. Um, and they want to, the, the, the core organizations are figuring out that liquids really do make a big difference and they want to get the word out. And then you take what Simon's done and then you add uh, Grow the Bench now. Uh, so there's uh, a real good availability of training that can shorten and flatten that learning curve and make it much more manageable than it was, say, five or six years ago. Yeah, it's definitely something we focus on at Snow Fighters as well, a uh, big topic of our operational training. So, um, And we're going to stay on it. You know, I think the long as people are are challenged in any respect, you know, we're going to provide all the resources we can to help them. How different is the use of liquids between market? So, you know, compare and contrast, like maybe northern Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota to you know, Kentucky, and then over to maybe the East Coast where things are wet, you know, Maryland all the way up to, you know, Massachusetts and New England. Like how, how different are the strategies and the products and the rates? And is it vastly different or, or does it really, well, is it close there, to There's the some same? common ground. There's some common ground, but they are noticeably different. Um, and probably the simplest way to put it is that a combination of, of expected low temperature and uh, uh, functional humidity shortly before the storm are two of the greatest factors that play into how you apply. If you are using a chloride or calcium chloride based product because it's cold and you are in a humidity rich environment that where the humidity is over 50% uh, well before the storm, then you need to apply that liquid very close to the beginning of the storm. On the other end of the scale, um, out in Colorado, we have quite dry air until like six hours, 10 hours before the storm. And so we, have, we can put the liquid down as much as 24 to 36 hours before the storm hits and still get good results without uh, it becoming uh, slippery. One of the things that uh, uh, mag and calcium chloride and some certain blends will do is if you expose them to too much humidity before the storm, then they have a tendency to get a little bit of a slime effect to it, a little bit slippery, and that creates 
a, a, a risk factor in a parking lot or something like that. So you, you close the window of opportunity when the humidity is high, you open the window of opportunity of application when, the, um, when it's low. And then you also look at the temperature that uh, salt brine by itself just does not work in any effective way uh, below 20 to 22 degrees. And if you've got habitual temperatures below 20 or 22 degrees, you need to be looking at either adding an additive to your salt brine, or you need to be thinking about uh, uh, a mag chloride or calcium chloride type product. And um, you take the, the, the colder, the more consistently cold areas. In Colorado, we're really privileged in the fact that it'll snow like crazy and we plow and we got sunshine at the end of the day of the, that the storm lifts. There's a lot of places where that isn't true. And so we get away with a pretreatment with the liquid plowing and a spritz type post-treatment. There's places in Wisconsin and uh, just that whole upper Midwest, North Dakota, where they have to uh, spray to prevent the bond from the snow and then plow. And then they have to thoroughly treat again to make sure that they're getting what I call the sandwich melting, the top and the bottom melting, and really make it go to wet black and keep it that way because refreeze becomes an issue when you don't have much sunlight. Yeah. So contractors to be effective with liquids, they need the, you know, they need the mixing equipment if they're going to mix. They need storage equipment. They need um, application equipment, and so a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, but they also need the knowledge. Um, and, and you guys provide some training and consulting work. Talk to us about that. What does that look like? Um, well, we, we've had a heavy hand in both the uh, uh, SIMA uh, developed uh, curriculum and uh, the Grow the Bench uh, curriculum. And so we know that there's good training out there. But the other thing is, is sometimes somebody wants a little bit more um, hands-on type help. And we provide uh, what we call coaching. And we've got a, a client that we're just starting. He's a uh, six truck company that's got a major landscape franchise that he's really kicking it up in the snow. And we're gonna be coaching him on developing an action plan for his, uh, um, his sites, which sites he's gonna do, and then help him to in turn uh, look at those sites and to manage them so that that uh, that uh, engineered uh, trial and error uh, that I mentioned a few minutes ago that that actually takes place in a in a, a shorter period of time and he develops the patterns that he needs to make his business successful. Yeah, cool. That's a that's a great resource. So thank you for sharing that with us. I want to shift gears here a little bit um, and. Um, you know, I've, I've known you for a long time, Scott, and your story is uh, really stands out to me as one of faith and overcoming some pretty serious tragic events in your life, um, probably more tragic than most people have to deal with. Um, you know, we all face difficult situations, and maybe uh, somebody on this call is facing something really very difficult in their personal lives, um, and maybe your story will be a source of encouragement to them. That's my hope. But um, take us back, if you would, and tell us about Josh and Beth, your two middle children. Okay, well, um, Josh was our number two uh, child. 
And uh, shortly after he was born, we found out that he had uh, cystic fibrosis, which uh, is a terminal disease. It messes up the lungs and the mucus producing system. And uh, it manifests itself in the form of lung disease and malnutrition normally. When Josh was born, they gave us a 50-50 chance of him making it to the age of 12. And so we, uh, we were very blessed in the fact that uh, um, Denver and uh, the Children's Hospital here in Denver was a, a, a CF uh, treatment center for the whole region. And so we got engaged with them very quickly and uh, jumped in on all their protocols and stuff. And then uh, two and a half years later, Beth was born. And uh, it's a genetically recessive gene, which means you have to have two carriers come together to um, actually produce the disease. And uh, normally it's a 25% chance of having uh, two carriers come together. Each child has got a 25% chance. Well, we had two as Bethy was also born with, uh, with cystic fibrosis. And so we um, engaged with the medical community very, very energetically. Um, it was a, uh, a, an adventure of monumental proportions. Um, it, one of the things before, just before Beth was born, Josh was hospitalized and um, we almost lost him. It was pretty scary. He, he looked, he had tubes and wires and stuff all over him as uh, just a, a little bitty kid. He wasn't even really a toddler at the time. And um, I remember looking, looking at him in that bed and just going, dear Lord, I've got a, I've got a, a plumbing experiment, not a child, please help him. And by God's grace, uh, he pulled out of it. And uh, uh, Bethy, uh, both of them went on to do quite well from a medical standpoint. Um, great, uh, <laughs> very energetic kids. We, we wound up moving to the mountains partially for their benefit. We found yeah. out that I can't document this, but this was our experience was that their lung issues were reduced in the little bit higher altitude where we lived than they were with the pollution in the city. Makes and sense. so we moved out of the city and moved up to Bailey and we uh, right next to Conifer. And so we have this little house on a mountainside where we raised these two kids with cystic fibrosis. And then uh, the fourth kid, Chris, was born um, just before we moved up there. And it was a, a great way to raise kids. We wound up homeschooling because that would reduce their exposure to uh, lung issues and stuff. Uh, we also uh, really engaged in uh, some special stuff for them. Um, there was a homeschool co-op that would let them get a lot of extra training, uh, a lot of extra teaching from other experienced people. And so it was a great way combined with now integrating them as they got a little bit older into the business and helping them to um, live a rural Colorado lifestyle with an entrepreneurial spin to it. And we kind of decided, we knew that we weren't gonna have these kids, uh, what we would call full-term, that 
we were going to outlive these kids. Mm -hmm. And so we went into this with the idea of let them experience everything that they can and to uh, do everything they want to within reasonable parameters. I mean, uh, Josh, uh, he, he <laughs> went to rodeo Bible camp and learned to ride bulls. Uh, both of the kids went on mission trips. Josh went to uh, down in Mexico and helped build uh, a uh, couple of homes for people down there. Uh, Beth went to uh, Jamaica and then she went to Australia uh, for a uh, period of, I think it was actually a full month. And uh, she had a lot of great experiences there. And uh, it, it was just good to see the kids, uh, obviously, uh, issues of faith. Carrie and I very early in our marriage decided we weren't going to be just churchgoers. We were going to be what I would call Christ followers. And that's taking it a step further, trying to be a really apply what uh, the Bible says, really try to draw close to God. And we in turn transferred that hunger for uh, the spiritual side of life to the kids and they absorbed it very very well and uh josh went on to be a uh, uh well he he I, I we sent him to bullfighting school rodeo bullfighting school for his senior gift and uh fortunately he uh figured out that being in a ring with a 2000 pound bull was not the greatest thing and he started down the, the firefighter uh, an EMT route, which I thought was much more reasonable. And um, Bethy was a, a great, um, she was on the, the swim team. She was an adequate swimmer, but she was the social butterfly for the team. She was the one that always was trying to get everybody included. And she did that when she was down um, on her mission trips. And it was just uh, a great to see them developing their inner core and uh, they're, they're basically cultivating in them the faith that they could stand on their own. That was their faith. That wasn't them riding our coattails, so to speak. They embraced uh, following Christ and uh, all that that entails. Yeah, it's almost like it's a really interesting way to to live. Like, you know, make every day count, right? Like live every day like it's your last. Like you guys were living that for years. Um, and I, most of us never live that way. You know, we assume we're going to live to be 100, right? I mean, it totally affects everything you think about and choices you make. Yeah, and I mean, uh, one of the things uh, Josh wound up doing, uh, as an example, was he was the first cystic fibrosis patient to ever make it into the uh, U.S. military, and he went Army Airborne, Special Ops, and so um, he went um, to his basic training at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, did his advanced at Fort Lee in Virginia, and um, uh, he was all set to go to jump school, and a hurricane messed up the jump school, so he had to come back to, and he was Army National Guard, so he had to come back to his National Guard unit back in Colorado. And uh, that's when he uh, 
got engaged to his childhood sweetheart and um, bought a motorcycle. And that's where the adventure uh, kind of takes a turn. Um, I was very hostile to uh, uh, what we used to call rice rockets. I said, if you want a Harley, fine. If you want a dirt bike, fine. But don't bring a rice rocket into my driveway. I'll back a dually truck over the top of it. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I know they're just death traps. Well, he got out on his own, was starting to get serious about uh, courting his uh, girlfriend, Tasha. And um, she'd had a very bad marriage gone wrong, very short-lived marriage, and had a, a little baby. Uh, and he was going to adopt, marry Tasha, adopt this kid. And um, so he was starting down that road and got a good job. And all this is in the time when he's waiting to go back to the military. And so he's uh, got to decide he was going to get the motorcycle. And uh, against my counsel, he bought it. And uh, he just loved taking people for rides because it was fast. Hmm. And um, there was one particular um, um, morning in March, end of March, in 2004 that he uh, uh, took his sister Beth for a motorcycle ride. And um, my wife, Carrie, was, uh, she had a, uh, she was working with the ambulance team. She was an EMT uh, on the local ambulance team. And I was down at work and um, Josh took the, took his sister for a ride on that motorcycle. And uh, being a hot rod kid and exuberance for a living that he had, he opened it up and unfortunately hit, this was March, so he had a little piece of gravel was left over from the snowstorm of the week before and laid that motorcycle down in oncoming traffic and they were both killed instantly. Wow. And Carrie heard the call go down on her uh, police radio that was in the car. So she flipped, turned around, flipped on the lights and went, came back and she was on scene uh, short minutes after the rest of the ambulance crew got there and figured it out quickly. And a while later, I got a call from one of the ambulance crew that said, Scott, you need to come home. And I figured out that a Dodge Diesel will do 105 and made a beeline for home and found both of my children were gone. And I first thing I did was hug my younger son. And that was a really tough time. But in the short days after that, I, I was reminded of something. And that was the Thanksgiving, this was March. So Thanksgiving of that year, we'd been together as a family. Normally we went to other family out of town, but it was just our core family because everybody was sick. And as happens sometimes when you have kids with uh, terminal disease, the subject of death came up and we got talking. And one of the things that Carrie just asked the kids was she said, okay, guys, if you could tell God how you wanted to die, what would you say? And this is at the Thanksgiving table. And so they said, well, first of all, I want to die quick. Second of all, uh, I, I want to I want to die doing something, doing something fun. And one of the other things that they said was, I don't want to die alone. 
Wow. And it wasn't until probably the day after they died that we flashed back on this and realized that what God had done was he answered their prayers because mm. they died doing something they wanted to do. They died quickly and they died together. And we, we describe it now as brutal mercy, brutal on us, merciful to them. Because so many of their little friends died. They both saw their friends with cystic fibrosis die in the hospital. And Josh very bluntly told one of the doctors, he says, it's not happening to me. Hmm. And so that just took the wind out of our sails for a long time. And as you might expect, it took a while to get going again. We were very blessed in the fact that um, the, the whole town, uh, the little town Bailey where we live, came to a stop and supported us. Uh, we were, since we were, I was involved in search and rescue, Carrie was with the ambulance service. We were well known in the community and we had a proce uh, procession of emergency vehicles to the kid's funeral that was over a mile long. Wow. And we just felt the support. And um, it was a difficult time, but we also knew that we, we needed to draw it closer to God. We needed to move closer, not, not go, why me, God, but go, okay, God, what next? And that became our kind of our, of our mantra is that we want to be close to you, God. What's next? We want to do this right. What's next? Yeah, that's when faith and community really matter. Absolutely. And it's not about testing. It's about having the ability to survive something and not you know, end up in a really bad place. Um, well, I'm going to hear some good news. Um, thank you for sharing that. And and I, I really hope and pray that that's a source of encouragement to someone that you were able, you and Carrie and, you know, your other kids were able to um, endure that and, and be here today and be able to, and I know Carrie has ministry and we might have a minute to talk about that here, but, um, you know, you guys are making a difference in other people's lives all over the place, um, in so many different ways. So really being used. Um, but talk, talk, talk to us a little bit about your, um, you have some grandchildren, right? <laughs> Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, well, uh, my oldest daughter, Abby, uh, got married about seven and a half years ago and, um, now has two, uh, wonderful little kids, a four-year-old and a not quite two-year-old. And, uh, they live about 50 miles away. So, oh, we can't be with them as much as we like to, but, uh, we do get the chance to see them probably once a week average. And so we've got a good relationship with them. And uh, um, God has also blessed my daughter's recovery from all this. And she has, um, her husband has been uh, absolutely a champ in supporting her and just knowing that uh, grief is a process and each person goes, goes through the process differently. And uh, we come through it very well. But the other part of it that is just such a joy to us 
is that Josh's fiance has kept in touch. And not only that, she actually lived with us after Josh died for a while. And we became very close to her and to the little boy that uh, she had from her uh, first marriage. Well, she went on and married a, uh, a captain in the Marines. And um, then when he got out of the Marines, um, they started having children. And now they have a total of five kids and they're missionaries over in Romania. And so Carrie's been to Romania once to uh, check on them, but we are so blessed to have just by adoption or by, I, I would call it blessing, having those five kids that we love dearly, and then having the two that are blood grandkids nearby, uh, we, we're truly blessed. It's a, it's a great situation and being able to see both my daughter and my son's fiance go on to live life full has been just incredibly great. Yeah, that's cool. What a blessing. Um, I do want to have you talk a little bit about um, your youngest son, Chris. Well, Chris was the youngest, and um, he was uh, just a, a real a real character. Uh, he had a great sense of humor, but one of the things that he had happened to him was he got thumped up the side of the head at a, at a, a, a summer camp, and he got knocked unconscious. And we didn't know that he'd actually endured a traumatic brain injury at the time. Mm. And he had uh, what the doctor called syncopal episodes. He would pass out as much as 100 times a day. Wow. And um, one time, um, Josh was giving him a hard time at dinner and said, OK, Chris, close your eyes. We're going to pray. And he says, I can't. And Josh says, just close your eyes, we're going to pray. And as soon as he closed his eyes, he passed out face first into a bowl of spaghetti. And the big kids thought that was funny. And I'm just going, oh, dear Lord. So I set him up. And, and it took about 20, 30 seconds for him to come back, too. And so we knew that there were neurological issues. And then after Josh died, Josh was Chris's hero. Um, there, there was... Uh, something close to six years between them. And so it was little brother and big, big brother. And um, Josh going in the military and everything else really tried to set the example for Chris in, in a lot of ways. Sometimes it was a good example. Sometimes it wasn't the best example. But Chris thought he was great. And then when Josh died, kids teenagers, Chris was 17, he, um, he, he internalized so much of his grief. He didn't have a good way to express it. And as the year or two passed, he was having more bouts of depression. And uh, then uh, a couple of years afterwards, right after Christmas, a couple of days after Christmas, uh, Chris, in a fit of depression, basically took his own life. Can't imagine. And I found him. And that was totally devastating. Um, we called 911 and went through all that. 
and basically officially passed at the hospital. But it was a, a very difficult situation on every count imaginable. And one of the things that Carrie and I are going, God, you blew it. You blew it. We had this cool ministry developing. We were starting to be able to reach people and love up on them who had lost kids. And one of the things that happens when you're a parent of a kid that commits suicide is you feel incredible shame. Hmm. Like, I let him down. I messed him up. Uh, somehow this is my fault or whatever. And one of the things I honestly had to do was um, <clears throat> right after Chris died, we got hit by a whole series of really bad storms and uh, they created total havoc and the, the snow plowing community got behind us. We had people come from as far away as Aspen, Colorado to come over and work our business so that we didn't have to, so that we could deal with the internals of losing Chris. And we had people that we've known from the online community, a couple of guys from SIMA came over and actually did my business for probably two weeks. Mm, that's cool. And gave us that time to at least try to get our heads attached. But I was given a, a we were given by a pastor friend of ours uh, soon as snow season was over, I literally crawled out of a plow truck and put on a golf shirt and got on an airplane for Florida. And we spent a week in Florida and soul searching, just getting away, getting perspective. And one of the things I did is I said, God, I've got to get some answers. And I remember walking around the little town of Flagler Beach, Florida one night. And I just said, God, I'm going to keep walking till you show me am I guilty of anything to do with Chris? And fortunately, 45 minutes or an hour into that walking around, I was under one of these peach colored street lights. And God may as well have spoken to me with a voice very deeply into my heart. And he said, no blame, one mistake. And so I could say that kids make mistakes. I mean, every teenager in the world makes mistakes. Some just happen to wind up with their mistakes being monumental. Mm -hmm. And that is, Chris, if you take into consideration the traumatic brain injury, the depression, there was logic behind it. Yeah. But the, and, but the mistake I made was, um, not putting, uh, the weapon away when I was prompted to. Hmm. And uh, it was just a, a relief to, to, to not deal with the blame. And then over a period of time to let the shame go, to say, okay, I had a wonderful son that made a tragic misjudgment based on depression. And the depression was both physiological and uh, internal. And that sequence of events settling my heart was a gift from God. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for walking us through that. Um, 
at that time, you said the community rallied, um, contractors rallied from the business standpoint. Um, what were some of the other resources or support that you guys tapped into? Um, I know Carrie's involved in some grief ministry. Was that something that you got involved in? So I'm just thinking about somebody that might be on the call today that's really dealing with something really difficult, and they just maybe don't realize what level of support's out there. Where would they, What did you tap into, and where would someone go? The, the first place when Josh and Beth died um, was there was a grief group through Children's Hospital for parents who had lost. Uh, kids. And that was help. But that lacked the spiritual punch. That was some good information, some good psychology, uh, understanding that each person grieves differently and stuff like that. But then um, after Chris died, actually, uh, one of the sites is only about 30 miles away from us. And so we can participate and we have become facilitators for spark a life as well. Now, Carrie went on to uh, become a certified life coach with a grief and a wellness specialty. So she actually does grief coaching for uh, obviously specifically ladies who need, uh, have gone through a tough situation. And so we have been able to take our very, very difficult um, life and see God shore us up and be able to in turn help other people along the way. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Well, Scott, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, contracting (laughs) liquids, uh, chasing fires, overcoming tragedy, um, dealing with grief, faith. And, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh, want to give you a chance to just share any other thoughts that we didn't cover, on this podcast. Um, but just thank you so much for everything you have done over the years for the industry, your involvement with industry associations like SIMA and Grow the Bench and Snowfighters, and even just taking time out of your busy life to share your thoughts with us today. So um, really appreciative, and I'll give you the last word. All right, the last word. Um, I guess the simple thing was is think about when you think about liquids, Think about a, a, a proper use of technology that takes a little bit of work. Don't go into it lightly, but don't, go in, don't be scared of it. It has become much more reasonable to deal with than it was 20 years ago when we got started. There's training available. Uh, capitalize on that. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to, uh, to jump in and maybe do a segmented uh, application and pick part of your your uh, portfolio to uh, test with and to develop your programs and then um, if that's if you want to call us we'd be glad to talk you through little details and we'd also be glad to talk to you about equipment so yeah I was just um, going to ask you what's what's the best way for someone to contact you Scott if they have Um, questions the web page is highcountrys.com and um the other thing is our office phone numbers on there. We answer the phone um, almost all the time. It's not 24 hours a day, but it's normal business hours. And uh, we're very willing to provide extra information 
Uh, and then if somebody wants to go down the coaching route, we're thrilled to be able to provide that as well. And uh, the one other thought is I'd just like to leave you is that um, God is real and he can and will come with you on your adventures, whether your adventures are very difficult ones or whether they're just transitioning a business. Um, I found that leaning on God um, and, and just the, the core biblical values has kept my head attached, both through business fiascos and through family difficulties. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, really consider that. Well said. Couldn't agree more. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you for being on this podcast, and I wish you a great winter, and um, take care. Thank you a bunch, Bill. It's always good seeing you. Appreciate the opportunity. Catch you later. Thank you for listening. We welcome suggestions for future guests or topics. Feel free to email me directly at phil at growthebench.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, become a subscriber today so you won't miss any future episodes. And don't forget to check out our upcoming events at snowfightersinstitute.com. Now go for it.